Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. 911, where is your emergency? I need Crookston right now. Someone got stabbed, please. Pagan stubs. Okay, do you know who did it and what they look like? Or is there somebody over there? Yes, I do. Just, I need someone now. He's stabbed, please. Louis DeLip, an outlaw biker, died after being stabbed at the Crook's Den bar in Daytona Beach one year ago. Police say a member of the Pagans, a rival gang, is suspected of committing the murder. But no one has been arrested. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the acquittal of Nora Salman, the widow of Omar Mateen, the gunman who murdered 49 people during the June 2016 Pulse nightclub massacre in Orlando. Salman was found not guilty of obstruction of justice and providing material support to a terrorist organization. And later, I'll discuss the unsolved murder case of outlaw motorcycle club member Christopher Keating, known in biker circles as Louis DeLip. He was fatally stabbed in the rear of a Daytona bar one year ago Tuesday, a crime that reawakened residents of the existential danger of biker gangs in Florida. Next up, details of the Salmon acquittal. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're very, very grateful to this jury and to the Orlando community. In my opening statement, I said maybe this was the only community who could give us the the justice that was so hard in the wake of this atrocity. And they did it. And we're so grateful to them. Noor is so grateful. Her belief in the process was shown today. That was one of Noor Salman's defense attorneys, Linda Moreno, speaking to reporters Friday outside a federal courthouse in Orlando, just two miles from where Salman's husband had gunned down a nightclub full of people 21 months earlier. Moreno's client had just been handed by a 12-panel jury a verdict of not guilty. Jurors deliberated for about 12 hours during a three-day span. Solman was acquitted of charges of obstruction of justice and aiding and abetting a terrorist. Had she been convicted, she would have faced up to life in prison. 
Solman had spent the previous 14 months in jail. She declined to speak to reporters when she left the courtroom. She is expected to be reunited with her son in California. Solman's late husband was killed by police after opening fire on the club. Authorities said he carried out the massacre in the name of the jihadist group, the Islamic State. The government built their case on alleged admission statements by Salman, which were not recorded. She reportedly admitted that she and Mateen had scouted out potential targets together, including Disney Springs. It was learned during the trial that Mateen had originally gone to Disney Springs to commit the shooting, but was scared away by the police presence there. That discovery may have aided the defense, who argued there was no way Salman could have known what her husband was going to do, because even he didn't know it until moments earlier. He only decided at the last minute to change targets. Video footage introduced at trial showed Salman had been at Disney Springs, and prosecutors argued she was there helping her husband and had actively helped him plan the massacre. There also was video of Salman accompanying Mateen as he purchased ammunition. Defense attorneys portrayed Salman as a meek woman with a low IQ and alleged she signed a false confession because she was tired and manipulated by investigators. According to a story in the Associated Press, legal experts said the FBI made a terrible mistake by not recording the interview with Salman. The Orlando Sentinel reported that 10 of the victim's families and survivors sat together in the courtroom. They were stoic after the verdict was read. Salman, by comparison, was emotional. Here is one of Salman's other defense attorneys, Fritz Scheller, discussing his interactions with those victims' family members and survivors. You know, one of the things that was extraordinary in this case is I had a lot of interaction um, with the victims of the shooting uh, who were in the courtroom today who came searching for the truth. And uh, after the verdict, they've always, uh, well, throughout the trial, they, they showed a sense of dignity and compassion and understanding. And even after the verdict, when I interacted, we, you know, we embraced. And uh, I just think they're extraordinary people. They've gone through a lot. And so it's, um, I know it's been a difficult process for them, but I grew in a great deal of admiration uh, for the parents and the, of the victims and the victims that were in the courtroom today. Coming up. I'll discuss the slang of Christopher Keating, known by many as Louis DeLip, the outlaw biker. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's the suspect look like? He's bald. He's in the back. We're in the back. All the way in the back. The lady still there that did it? Yes. We're getting in the van. Damn. 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 
That hysterical 911 call from a woman at Crook's Den was made the night of April 3rd, 2017. A bald man, thought to have been a member of the Pagan's Motorcycle Club, is suspected of stabbing 59-year-old Christopher Keating multiple times in the upper back. Keating, known as Louis de Lip, lay on the concrete in the alley behind the bar at 126 Orange Avenue in Daytona Beach. Ma'am, I need you to relax. Is the person that did it still there? The operator couldn't get the woman to respond to her, so she asked her to put someone else on the phone. The man who grabbed the phone was only marginally less frantic. Okay, listen, they're already on the way. Is the person that stabbed him still there? Is the person that stabbed him still there? Yes or no? No, they left. Please answer me. They left. Okay, where on his body? Where? Okay, I need you guys to relax. They're already driving. I'm not the person driving there. Where on his body is he stabbed? His back. Does anybody know if he's breathing and conscious? He's breathing, but he's fucking out. He's like out. When paramedics arrived, he barely had a pulse. His vital signs stopped after he got to Halifax Health Medical Center. During a media conference the day after the stabbing, Daytona Beach Deputy Chief Jakari Young said there had been two altercations inside the bar, and Keating was involved in both. The first one was inside, near the service bar. Moments later, the second one started in the back, near the exit to the alley. That was where Keating was stabbed. Keating was not thought to have been armed when he was attacked. During the same media conference, Young announced that the killing was gang-related. The stabbing happened when there were about 30 people in the bar. The owner at the time, Steve Klein, told me that he was astonished to learn there had been a stabbing. He saw the first skirmish and watched as some people went down the hallway toward the bathrooms. But he had no idea someone had been mortally wounded until he saw two women running toward him, beckoning someone to call 911. By then, a patron had already called. Police said Klein was not inclined to help them when they questioned him about the stabbing. Police Chief Craig Capri said Klein was sympathetic to biker gangs, suggesting he may have been protecting them. Rumors have circulated that Crook's Den is a haven for pagans. Klein never spoke to the News Journal again after that interview, and he no longer owns the bar. A second 911 call made after the stabbing indicates just how unwilling people in that culture are to cooperating with law enforcement. Hi, um, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Where are oh, you? Okay. Uh, we have somebody uh, bleeding right, in where, the back where alley. We have somebody bleeding in the back alley at the Crooks Den. Okay, stay on the phone with me. Do you know what happened to them? Uh... Kind of, sort of, but no. We've already got a call up. Because I was told by the owner to stay out of it, but I kind of know it went on, so I don't want to be a snitch. Okay. I'm just, I was asked to call 911 because hey, somebody's friend is reading in the back alley at the Crooks Den. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay, someone already called it in. We're sending out police and evac, okay? Okay. 
then I'm out of this. I'll just have to do okay, what I'm no doing problem. now. I'll let you know, okay? All right, sweetheart, bye. Um, bye-bye. The biker lifestyle is one that involves defying authority. Daytona Beach police detective Irabeth Lee investigates organized crime. She wouldn't talk to me specifically about the Keating case because it remains open. But she did speak to me about some of the ways motorcycle gang culture walls itself from law enforcement. They intimidate others to keep quiet, and the outlaws in particular use dramatic slogans to drive that point home. See it more with these with the one percenters than I do with street guys. The outlaws, one of their things is snitches are a dying breed. And you'll see that as a badge of honor on their vest. Um, another one of their other sayings is God God forgives outlaws don't. They wear that as a badge uh, patch on their vest. So when it comes to them not talking to law enforcement, they, they won't unless they have to. Lee also told me that one well-known outlaw club in the Daytona area included a sign posted on the door stating, We don't talk to police. One of the foremost experts on the outlaws is a longtime law enforcement investigator out of Wisconsin, Charles Berard. He asked me not to be specific about the agency he works for. Berard told me that the outlaw's penchant for maintaining secrets is a likely reason for the Keating case still being open after 12 months. Well, this you have to understand. Uh, the outlaws have a saying that they live by on their t-shirts all the time. It's called snitches are a dying breed. Uh, and they mean it. Uh, they, they will kill uh, people that uh, snitch them off. It just shows you what happens when you open your mouth against the interests of the club. Uh, that being said, you end up having things that go on during an investigation. The local PD may have information based upon um, their investigation, their witnesses, and want to take it a certain way. Uh, the federal, when they come in, the feds will take over everything if they can. And it depends if they are going for a larger term investigation. Louis DeLip lived in the Lake Ashby area of Volusia County, southwest of New Smyrna Beach. He was one of 14 defendants in a Jacksonville federal case 35 years ago. He was embroiled in a highly publicized racketeering trial that lasted up to four weeks. All of the defendants on trial were members of the outlaws. Thirteen of them were convicted, including Keating, who was convicted of conspiracy and racketeering charges. He also had the Louis de Lip moniker by then. He was sentenced to 20 years, but a database showed that he was released in February 1987. The Miami Herald covered the trial, which disclosed some strong accusations leveled against Keating. One woman testified that she had been wrongly accused by the outlaws of stealing quaaludes, so she was tortured for it. The person who administered the torture was Keating. He kept her in a locked room. He routinely beat her and played with a gun while threatening her life. Keating's criminal record didn't show too many blemishes after he served his time. The Outlaws Motorcycle Club was formed in 1935 in McCook, Illinois. It's the second largest one percenter motorcycle club in the world behind the Hells Angels, a declared enemy 
of the outlaws. Here is Barrar talking to me about the origins of motorcycle gangs and what makes them unique to other forms of organized crime. Motorcycle gangs in the history of the United States is the only type of organized crime that we have ever exported to another country. Uh, everything like the Mafia, La Cosa Nostra, MS-13, uh, they've all been brought into the United States. But this is a homegrown that we've exported to Europe, to Russia, to Japan, I mean, all over the world. Motorcycle gangs really came into existence at the end of World War II. What happened is military veterans, or a lot of them, uh, were used to a different type of a lifestyle. And they came back to the United States. And quite frankly, they were still looking for what we consider it's a high. It's being involved. Um, they never had anything that de-escalated uh, with a lot of these returning veterans. And what happened is they started to look for more things that were risky, more that, that they could experience with other people and get that same feeling that they had when they were with their buddies over in the trenches or over fighting. And because of that, a lot of them started leaning towards the lifestyle of the motorcycle game. In the book, You Gotta Be Dirty, which chronicles the history of the Outlaws Motorcycle Club, author Michael Grogan writes that the first major gathering of motorcycle club members occurred during the July 4th weekend in 1947 in Hollister, California. Thousands of motorcyclists flooded the town, and the small police department there had no hope of quelling the rowdiness. It sought help from the California Highway Patrol. Within weeks, Life magazine published a very famous photo of a man on a motorcycle. His baseball cap was on crooked. He had a beer bottle in his left hand and another in his right hand, which was resting on the right handlebar. Several more empty bottles were scattered around the front wheel. That widely circulated image had a significant effect on the public's perception of motorcyclists, or at least some thought so, according to Grogan's book. It depicted bikers as unruly, gluttonous rebels who traveled in herds, wreaking havoc wherever they went. The photo drew the ire of one particular editor, Paul Brokaw, who at the time was the editor-in-chief of Motorcyclist magazine. He blasted life and its photographer for the image, which he said was clearly staged. Brokaw said it branded tens of thousands of innocent and clean-cut bikers as undesirables. He went on to say, quote, The disreputable cyclists were possibly 1% of the total number of motorcyclists. Only 1% are hoodlums and troublemakers. That was the origin of the term one percenters. Outlaw motorcycle gang members proudly refer to themselves as one percenters. People who don't follow the law. People who don't kowtow to authority. They live out their lives as they please. Not long after that event in Hollister, more biker gangs started forming. These groups can have anywhere in the thousands of members. 
Uh, the number one in the world is the Hells Angels. Uh, they have chapters all over the world. They've got probably four to 8,000 members. They exist, especially in the United States, and in deference to Florida, uh, they come down there for bike week all the time. <clears throat> but that's an outlaw event. Now, the outlaws are probably number two. They probably have four to 5,000 members, uh, mostly in the United States, but they have Germany, they have Cambodia, they have uh, Japan, and they are also <laughs> considered to be worldwide. Uh, the third club you'd probably say would be the, Bandi the Banditos. They have an alliance with the outlaws because in effect, uh, bandito means outlaw in Spanish. So what you have is you have a common tread between the two of them. And then the fourth one would be the pagans. The fifth would be probably uh, the Sons of Silence. The Banditos, as Berard just said, may have an alliance of sorts with the outlaws, but that might be the only one. Tensions have always existed between the Hells Angels and the outlaws. The pagans have routinely been at war with both of them. And the Sons of Silence also have had their history with the outlaws, highlighted by one high-profile murder in 1980. When one Sons of Silence member killed the Outlaws National Vice President with an AK-47 in Indianapolis. Here is Barrard talking in more detail about the wars among the gangs. The Outlaws historically have had ongoing series of wars with the Hells Angels. And it's always to see who is a number one. Uh, the Pagans for a number of years uh, fought with the Outlaws, but then they fought against the uh, Hell's Angels more, and all of the animosity with the outlaws was basically worked through. The pagans, if they're not fighting with the Hell's Angels, they, they don't really get along with anybody else because they can't get a whole heck of a lot bigger. They have to be a little bit badder and meaner. So when it comes to Florida, they've historically come down to Florida, and there's been a lot of animosity between them and the outlaws. About 15 years ago, I know we were down there um, working the outlaws, and it surprised uh, us to no end when we found numerous pagan members over at the outlaw clubhouse in Daytona. And that signaled a truce between the outlaws and the pagans. Uh, that truce is no longer in effect. I can't discuss what the reason is right now, but there is some real bad blood. As evidenced by what happened at Crook's Den one year ago. The slang of Louis de Lip may have been a harbinger. The outlaws are the alpha dog biker gang in Florida. But the pagans have had a long-standing presence. The group has a well-known chapter near Tampa. Other clubs also exist throughout the state, including the Dirty White Boys, the Kingsmen, the Pistons, the 69ers, the Warlocks, even the Mongols, which are better known on the Pacific Coast. A lot of violence erupted among gangs last year, starting with that stabbing in Daytona. About six weeks later, in Leesburg, during the annual Bike Fest, David Gutter Donovan, a member of the Kingsmen, went to a Circle K to buy some cigarettes. When he came out, he was surrounded by outlaws, one of whom put a knife to his throat. He was forced to his knees and ordered to take off his jacket, which had a Kingsman patch on it. He refused. 
He was fatally shot in the back. The Orlando Sentinel reported that the murder was a coordinated attack involving roughly 15 outlaws, many of whom were spread out to serve as lookouts and to insulate those carrying out the threat in the shooting. Other members of the Kingsmen, according to the same article, were told to strip off their cut, meaning their cut-off vests and club insignias. It is believed they complied. Leesburg police made a couple arrests in connection with the killing, but the shooter remains at large. Authorities said at the time that the outlaws were challenging motorcycle clubs throughout the state to either join them or submit to their dominance. In September, during an annual poker run in Key West, more than a dozen outlaws got into a fight in a bar, injuring the owner and an employee, according to the South Florida Sun Sentinel. In December, members of one smaller gang decided to take matters into their own hands. Two members of the 69ers dismounted their bikes on State Road 54 in Pasco County and walked toward a man in a pickup truck. It was Paul Anderson president of the Outlaws chapter there. One of the 69ers tapped on Anderson's driver's side window to get his attention and then gunned him down, killing him. The killers used a scout vehicle to track Anderson. All three men suspected of being involved in the killing were arrested. Pasco Sheriff Chris Nako told the media that he hoped there would be no retaliation, but he and his detectives seemed convinced something was coming. They're still waiting for it. For the most part, the unrest among outlaw motorcycle gangs, a term used to describe all one percenters, hasn't been as palpable in Daytona since the April 3rd slaying of Christopher Keating. However, not long after the stabbing, Daytona Beach police responded to a call in an industrial area off Mason Avenue. Someone with a Hells Angels t-shirt was seen in the area. And he was seen by the outlaws. The man in the shirt found himself surrounded. There was no violence, but there was intimidation. And there have been no known Hells Angels shirt sightings since then. Here is Detective Lee telling me about that incident. Why do you think the outlaws did this to this uh, person? If you know anything about the Hells Angel, they're just as big as outlaws and they don't they don't like them at all. For what I understand, Florida is known to be uh, outlaws, so you don't see any Hells Angels here. But what I understand, that guy was not a Hells Angel. Um, he said that that was just given to him. He, he didn't understand that was not allowed. Berard said such an incident, which he called false flagging, is a common occurrence. He's seen it more than a hundred times in his career. We call it false flagging. Uh, you put on material that you think makes you look neat and that makes you look badass. But in reality, what it does is it makes you a target because somebody sees you wearing something that says 81, which is represents the Hells Angels. And they see that usually in a red and white color in a certain type of script. And any outlaw worth his salt knows that that's uh, Hells Angel paraphernalia. That's stuff that they're, they, they don't want anywhere in their areas. So if they see it, they will go and if they're in a really good mood, they'll tell you to take it off. If they're in a mellow mood, they'll probably just beat you and take it off you. 
And if they're in a bad mood, uh, they will take it off you. They will beat you. They will sit there and tip over your bike. They will crack the crap out of your bike. And there's not much you can do about it because there will be five, six, eight, ten, twelve, twenty. And they will stand around and intimidate everybody else. So everybody sees this going on, and it's all over a stupid T-shirt. When someone wearing a particular patch is surrounded by bikers sporting another patch, and that biker is told to remove it, it's often a life-or-death proposition. But just like the instance of the Kingsman who was killed in Leesburg last spring, taking it off isn't such an easy decision. A lot goes into earning that patch. When it comes to something like the mafia, you have a inherent process that is blood in, blood out. Because of that, you have a kinship with the people that you're with. They are very adamant about that. Well, you have the same type of thing with motorcycle gangs. You have a prospect, period, or a probate, period. And during that time, you have to do whatever the club says. If it means that you have to go and beat somebody up, you have to do it. If you have to go and steal something, you have to do it. If it means that you're going to be involved in a homicide, you have to do it. Not necessarily will they trust you at that point to have you go kill somebody, but they may have you drive a car uh, to something or away from something. And it's all a part of bringing you into the fold. The more you do for the club, the more that you will gain steps towards getting your full patch. And to motorcycle clubs, that full patch is everything. That is the identifier of who they are, what they are. One of the most high-profile biker gang members ever in Florida, or anywhere for that matter, was Harry Taco Bowman, who spent time on the FBI's most wanted list. He was joined on the list by Olympic Park and abortion clinic bomber Eric Rudolph. He was removed from the list when he was arrested on June 7, 1999. That date was significant because on that same day that Bowman was removed from the list, Osama bin Laden, who at the time was wanted for the embassy bombings in Tanzania and Kenya, was added to the most wanted list. Berard was involved in investigating Bowman during the 1990s. Harry Taco Bowman had charisma. He had a lot of backing from a lot of guys that were a lot bigger and a lot stronger. But he knew what to do when it came to uh, standing up to the outlaws. He talked a good talk. Uh, He let the other outlaws fight the fight. He was the national president at the time. Uh, He was the president when uh, the outlaws were trying to kill the Hells Angels in a number of bombings and shootings in the Midwest, and I was directly involved in many of those investigations. Bowman was indicted in August 1997 in Tampa for three murders. He also was wanted in the murder of a fellow Outlaws member in Indiana in 1995. He also was accused of ordering bombings of rival clubhouses in Orlando and in Cook County, Illinois. Additionally, he was wanted for murders in Edgewater and Ormond Beach, which took place in 1991 and 1982, respectively. 
As you just heard, he was the former international president of the Outlaws, a title he held until his indictment. When he was caught, he was visiting his family in an upscale area of Gross Point Farms, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit. He was convicted and is now serving two life sentences in a federal prison in North Carolina. Well, if Clay did this, it is a club issue. Let's take it to the table. Let everyone know. What table? You're out. Remember? That was a scene from the television drama The Sons of Anarchy, which ran for seven seasons on FX. It depicted a fictional motorcycle gang operating in California's Central Valley. It pushed the envelope on the level of violence that could be depicted on a basic cable channel, but it was a ratings bonanza for the network, scoring shares higher than other known dramas such as Rescue Me and The Shield. Among the viewers was Detective Lee. As far as how accurate it was, it was hit or miss. So, did you watch Sons of Anarchy? I did. <laughs> I did. What did you What did you think of the show and and how closely it represented real life? It represented it when it came to the secretiveness of everything. About they can't talk about anything. About you know they call their meetings church and they have it once a week. Um, that came up pretty close, but other than that, it's just yeah. It was a figment of somebody else's imagination, huh? Yes. Berard is quick to note that biker gangs should not be romanticized or underestimated, and certainly not ignored. They commit real violence of the extreme kind. There's a fine line between fear and respect. You fear something that can harm you. You respect something that you have the same values or values that you want to emulate. You don't want to respect these people. Uh, these people are, they, they have members that have been convicted of homicides, of bombings. There are members of biker gangs that have killed women with their children. Uh, this is not something to play with. And a lot of people get hurt because they do come in contact with them. And they go, this is just an ordinary person. And they just want to live a free life. No, it's not. They are uh, forcing their wives, girlfriends into prostitution, into menial jobs. And they totally degrade women. These are not people that you want your kids to emulate. So, you know, I guess the, the hard part is uh, respect. No, no, you, you don't respect them. You, you just have to learn. You don't have to tolerate them. But law enforcement as a whole has to take them uh, for the fact that these are people that are dangerous and people that have a continuing commitment to crime in small neighborhoods, in, in small communities, and in large communities. But when you see them, you always be aware of them. You always take a step back. If you don't have to go in that store, don't go in the store. If your wife and kids are in there, go in and get them out and leave. Uh, because you don't want to stay around because anything can be a flashpoint with these bikers. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week 
when I will profile a 1986 murder case out of Daytona Beach that involves six defendants. Five of them received sentences ranging from probation to two years in prison. The one who got more got life, and he wasn't even the shooter, according to him. He was 18 years old at the time, and he was from Canada. Today, after serving more than three decades behind bars, he is seeking a transfer to a Canadian prison to be closer to his aging parents. They are no longer healthy enough to visit him in Florida. Among my special guests for that episode will be the inmate himself, Russ Davies. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at TonyCrimeWriter or email him at Tony.Holt at News-JRNL.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of... uh human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.